Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is podcast. Well, here we are in part two of what was intended to be a one-part series. But Dale likes to talk a lot. Okay, whatever. Just calling as I see it. I know, you were, you were waving your arms and pointing to the clock because we were only like halfway through our material and we were all the way through our time. And Dale was on a roll. I know, you stopped me mid-roll. I'm sorry. Here, push my back so I can start rolling again. <laughs> I'll roll you all the way down the hill. <laughs> well, we were in a... Deep conversation. I was going to say heated discussion, but we weren't we weren't no. raising our voices or anything. It was no. actually very analytical. But what we've been talking about is the existence of white privilege. And what we want to continue to do is to explore whether or not that is a biblical category. We've kind of summarized. We've talked about critical race theory and intersectionality where the Southern Baptist Church has said, hey, these are helpful tools that help us understand as we look at things through the lens of Jesus and through the lens of Scripture. We've highlighted some examples we've seen in Scripture of privilege and racism and we've explored a little bit of history of what that has looked like in America. But really, we ended on this question that we want to pick up and answer as to where our personal responsibility comes into play with this. Because we, we've heard it said a lot, it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And that's true, but what does that mean? That I mean, if I have never said the N-word or I've ever owned a slave, does that mean that we're in the clear we don't necessarily think so. We, we've talked a lot about the structures in our nation that are white supremacist structures that have advantaged white people and disadvantaged people of color. But we want to look at a biblical framework in the context of sin to unpack that a little bit more from a biblical perspective. Because we tend to think of sin as single cause, single effect from one person to another. But sin is so much bigger than what one person does to another single person. Right. And the view of sin really is seen in scripture as a generational issue as well. And we can see that pretty clearly laid out in Exodus 34 verses six through seven, where it says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yes, yeah, so he's, there he's talking about the effects of sin are not localized to the person doing the sinning and the one person that's being sinned against, that there is negative effects and even judgment unto generations. So as we relate this to white supremacy, you can say, I never owned slaves. I wasn't even alive at any time when segregation was in effect. And yet me, because I am in the lineage of white people, I stand in the benefit that that structure has built up for me. And so I am reaping the benefits of that oppression on other people. And likewise, someone who is black or someone who is a person of color 
they are reaping the negative consequences that of that unto the third and fourth generation. Yeah, and so we see that there is some level of not necessarily a accountability in the sense of we should bear the weight of that as a personal sin that we had committed, but there is a level of responsibility and accountability for us to see redemption for those sins committed by previous generations that we are connected to. Right. There's this corporate responsibility and this corporate effect of sin. And we see this anecdotally, say, in like the life of Abraham, where if you read the book of Genesis, you see Abraham had a somewhat tenuous relationship with the truth, where he he was prone to some falsehoods. Then you look at his son Isaac, and Isaac was even a little bit more so. And then under the third generation, Jacob, and Jacob's name literally means one who supplants. He's a schemer. He's someone who is constantly involved in deception. And we see that played out in his life. And so this character flaw that we see in Abraham, it's visited on Isaac. It's visited on Jacob. And it becomes ingrained in their family culture. Yeah, and we even see it on a larger scale in all of Israel itself where Israel was exiled because of their own sin, but also because of this sin that was committed by their ancestors. And so you continue to see this generational effects of sin and generational responsibility of sin. Yeah, not only that it's getting ingrained, but also the consequences begin to grow with each generation that it's not dealt with. And that's an interesting one in Leviticus where where God talks about if you go into exile, then what you're going to pay for in exile is the the number of Sabbath years, sabbatical years that you did not give the land, but you kept harvesting from it and harvesting from it and harvesting from it. The land is going to get its Sabbaths. And so when Israel went into exile, they went into exile because they were worshiping false deities. They were doing child sacrifice. They're doing all kinds of heinous things to these pagan gods. But what the punishment ended up being, what the judgment ended up being, was that they were paying for the sins of their generation, but they were paying back all of the previous sins of the previous generations. And so for every one year uh, of sabbatical that was not given to the land, that was a year they spent in exile. They spent 70 years in exile. And so that sabbatical judgment, it spanned back centuries before any of the people who actually went into exile were even born. And yet they were reaping the judgment for the sins of their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their fathers' 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 fathers. And you constantly see a reference to that in the Old Testament of pointing back as a reminder to the sin that their fathers had committed and even multiple generations before. And this idea seems a little bit mind-bending and even offensive to Western ears and to a Western worldview. It's really tough for us to wrap our mind around this whole concept of corporate guilt, corporate judgment when the sins that were committed were hundreds of years before you were even born. 
Right. But for other cultures, I think it's a little bit easier for them to understand because they function in more of a community and communal mindset where for us as not only Americans, but really just Westerners, we have a very individualistic mindset. But you're right. It, it's far more difficult for us because we always want to throw around the word like that's not fair. Well, I mean, really, what is fair? <laughs> but um, the fact that you yourself are sending it's there's that element too. And there's this continued understanding of communal sin and that we really see from the beginning of scripture where sin entered the world through one man. Yeah, through Adam way way back at the beginning the world was perfect and complete and then Adam sinned and it ruined the whole thing. Right, and so sin is something that has happened to us, but it's also something that we are engaging in ourselves. And so in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 12, and then 19, that really points out the understanding of how sin entered to all of society, to all of the world through one man, and says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that last part is talking about one man, but from a different perspective, and that being Jesus. So through one man's righteousness, we are all through him made righteous. And so there really is this larger communal understanding and communal responsibility of sin in the larger part of society. And so to view it from an individualistic way, as we view the issue of white privilege right now, is really a misunderstanding of the way that scripture views sin in general. Yeah, I think we maybe have too small a view of sin in the way that it pervades. I think we have a pretty good grasp on the personal effects of my personal sin on my personal life and how detrimental that can be, how corrosive and damaging that can be. But maybe part of the reason why we struggle with the idea of white privilege is that we haven't captured that broader understanding of what sin is because sin is something that you do but sin is also just something that is the air that we breathe sin is something that we're born into and we see that in the romans passage where basically what paul is saying there is that when adam sinned he broke the seal on evilness in the world and so as a result of that even the moment you are born you were born into sin. And so what that means is that even before you commit your first sinful act on earth, you are already an object of wrath, to borrow the language from Ephesians 2. That you as a person, though created in the image of God, were born into that fallen state. And so apart from the grace of God, even before you committed a sin, because you were born into the sinfulness framework, 
were already worthy of judgment and condemnation. And then you committed your first sin and you just doubled down on it and sealed the deal. And so that idea, even as I say it out loud and I spent like all kinds of time in coffee shops reading and trying to figure out like it's an offensive idea. Certainly because it feels unfair and it feels like, well, that's not my fault. It's not my fault that it's something I was born into. But to take that perspective would be to to throw the responsibility to somebody else and to act as if you have no part in any of it. And I think that same understanding of just sin overall, that we're born into it and that shouldn't be the case, that's not our fault, is the same mindset that we're taking with white privilege, where we think, well, I personally have not done anything that I could think of that would convey any kind of white supremacy or mistreatment of someone of another race. But the fact is, it's something we're born into. It's part of the air that we breathe. And the more that I continue to have some of these conversations, even with friends that are still trying to sort through it, it is interesting to hear some of them say, wow, I didn't realize the way that I view somebody based on the color of their skin. Because it's just so ingrained to the way that I grew up or the way that I understand society. And I mean, I had a friend recently who said, you know, I was in a bad neighborhood and had seen someone who was black and automatically I was, I was afraid. And she was like, I know that's wrong, but that fear was automatically in me and I wanted to walk on the other side of the street. And you hear so many stories like that where just based on someone's skin color and the way that they're dressed, There's some sort of fear that's automatically instilled in us. And the reason those stories exist is because that's something that has been ingrained and embedded within our society. It's part of the air we breathe. And that has to change. That absolutely has to change. And we have to be able to take some kind of personal responsibility for that, even if at large we're not the one who caused it. Right. I mean, because to a certain extent, we could explain away all of the sin that has been in our life to this caused it and that caused it and all these kinds of things. But at a certain point, I mean, and all of that can be helpful as you seek to find a better way forward. But at a certain point, we have to take ownership over that and say, I am choosing to be a part of creating a better tomorrow rather than explaining away the problem or denying the problem or anything like that, we really need to step into this and to do so with a heart to say, this might not be my fault, but that doesn't mean that it's not my responsibility. And I think that's that's the mindset there because fact of the matter is, I didn't choose to be white, People didn't choose to be black. You're born the way you were born to the parents you were born to in the region that you were born in. We don't have control over any of that, but we can take ownership in fixing what has been given to us, what has been passed down to us is a system that has been rigged against people of color. Yeah, and we have a responsibility to open our eyes to that 
And even to see the way that that system has shaped the way that we view other people. Because at the end of the day, even if I don't feel like I've personally done anything, as your eyes become open to see how ingrained it is in our systems and in our society and just in the air that we breathe, it becomes really disheartening, really disturbing, and in certain cases really disgusting the way that people are being treated. And as Christians, our outlook shouldn't be self-centered, like this isn't my fault, because that's looking at the issue as a very self-centered view and a very individualized view. If you just open your eyes and see that this problem is existing, then you have a responsibility to take in whatever measure that might look like, because people who are created equally created in the image of God, are being mistreated and taken advantage of. And that's a problem. And have been for generations. Right. It's not just a today issue. It's a today on, on the back of generations. Certainly. And even if I did not have some very specific role to play in that, it should disturb me to my core because as Christians we are to be people that love people because at the center of God's heart is people. He sent his son to save people who were created in his image. And if we're only worried about, well, that's not my responsibility. It's not my fault. Then I, I question where our heart lies. If it really lies in line with the heart of God himself. Yeah. And I think we also in this conversation, need to be willing to call out specifically and unequivocally the wickedness, the evilness, the sinfulness of a system that for generations long has privileged white people over and over and above people of color. There was recently a, a preacher with a large platform who was talking about this issue and he was trying, because there's a lot of pushback against this idea of white privilege, especially among white folks in the church. And, you know, that's part of the reason why we want to, you know, engage in this conversation in a very well-reasoned way. Let's like tone down the emotion a little bit. Let's talk about this to kind of hope, you know, help get through and maybe foster some understanding. Uh, But the way that he did that, he says, I know that the term white privilege is kind of a trigger term for people where once they hear that term, they kind of stop listening and they just go into their talking points or whatever it might be. And so he says, I don't maybe use that term. What I call it is white blessing. White people have been giving, given blessing. And so we need to use that blessing in order to lift up people of color. And he very quickly backpedaled on that and apologized for it because as you can imagine, that went over like a lead balloon. And he, he just started, he just immediately started getting shred to pieces. And his heart, I think, was in the right place because he's like, okay, how do I frame this differently so that we can get through and I can bring some people along and maybe not be so offensive in this conversation but still move the ball forward? And so I think his heart was in the right place and our our heart is in the same place. uh, But I think where we want to differ from that is that we don't want to back down from the fact that there were very evil things that have been to the benefit of white people. I mean, it's been demonstrated that there there are so many ways no matter how you look at it, whether it's 
accumulation of wealth, whether it's political influence, whether it's housing, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's schooling, all of these systems, if you just look at the faces sitting in the, in the places of success through the generations, those faces have been white and that has not been a mistake. And so we need to call out the evilness of that, not to bash you for being white, but to say that in this generation, we are going to take a step in a vastly different direction because we don't want to relive the sins of our fathers and our father's fathers. We don't want those sins to be visited on our children to the fourth generation. And so we are stepping in a vastly different direction. And so really that's where our heart is for this because by the power of Jesus, there's, there's, there's power of transformation through one man, sin entered the world and, and death through sin. But by one man, Jesus Christ, all can be made righteous. And we can actually break these structures that in the name of Jesus, every chain is broken. And a lot of times when we, we talk about the chains of addiction or the, the chains of habitual sins that we have, and certainly yes, but also the, the chains of systemic oppression and broken, not even broken systems because the systems are functioning as they were intended to function, but these oppressive systems can, can be broken. Yeah. And so it's important for us to look at how we should respond as individuals because there is an individual responsibility that each one of us have as followers of Christ, regardless of the color of your skin. This is a large issue that our society is facing, and it's not an issue that has just come up in our generation. It, Like we've been saying on this whole podcast, it really has been the founding issue of our country because our country was built on the back of slaves. And out of that, there has been change that's come. And sorry, I also wanted to add in there, built on the backs of slaves and then also on the backs of underpaid and abused immigrants. Right. Whether those are immigrants from China, whether those were immigrants from Latin America. I just wanted to, to, to throw those in as well. Yeah, that's important to say. It's not, the oppression is not limited to one race, though we can see the history and of We that. haven't even talked about Native Americans. <laughs> right. The issue has really affected multiple races and multiple generations, and that's a large issue. So we want to see how is it that we are to respond. And the goal isn't for white people to hate themselves or for other races to hate white people or to walk around with this abiding sense of existential dread because that's not productive. And there's a sense of accountability that needs to be had, but there should there should be no sense of shame and guilt because you are white. That's not helpful. That's not going to solve anything. That's just going to make it a different sort of a race war. And mm -hmm. that's not what we want either. Yeah. I, when you, you talk about like a sense of guilt, I think an abiding sense of guilt is unproductive. But I do think there is actually a place to step into feelings of remorse and guilt that I think is healthy. It's uncomfortable. But I think for me, I've experienced a lot of this, that as I have become aware of all these things that I didn't know, of all of this pain that I was blind to, 
of all of these oppressive systems that, I don't know, they were just, it's just the way it is. I didn't understand as I've become aware of it. There is, I think there is a sense of healthy remorse and repentance in the midst of that. But the key in there is the trajectory. Are you going to a sense of dread and just depressiveness? Or are you turning that guilt into repentance? Yeah, because I've heard quite a few of my friends that are Christian and white who've said, well, now we're the oppressed people. Now we're the ones that everyone hates. But that that's the wrong view to now feel like you're a victim I think in that's some a, way. It's just, it's frustrating. And I think it's a defense mechanism though, because you're like, I'm feeling attacked. I was just sitting here trying to live my life. I didn't really want any part of like whatever this conversation is. And so I'm feeling attacked. And so I'm feeling defensive. And so that kind of gets shot up as a defense mechanism, I think, most of the time. Yeah, well, I feel like it's it's trying to victimize someone that's not a victim. And really, it's unempathetic. <laughs> right. It lacks no sense of awareness or empathy. And and I've heard it from, you know, people who are like, well, now I'm, now I'm the targeted group just because I'm white, middle class, and Christian. And I'm thinking, oh, you are missing the larger issue. You have now made it about yourself, and it's not actually about you. Because you can play a part in transformation. You can play a part in actually helping things get better. But instead... You are feeling uncomfortable and becoming very defensive. And now the conversation is just becoming even more heated and frustrating for everyone. And no one can actually try and reach a solution. So we want to talk about (laughs) how should we respond? We just talked about all the ways we don't want to respond. So... Some of the ways that are probably a bit more productive than throwing up our walls and our defense mechanisms and becoming very emotional about things is to look at your own assumptions with the more critical eye. And so some of the questions that you can ask yourself are, why do I feel that certain things are more American than others? And what are those things that you categorize and think like that's the American thing to do, but you see someone else who has a different skin color and they do something different. And that's not the American way. And so ask yourselves, like, why are there certain things that are more American to me than others? And really, like, this is, like, so huge in so many ways when it comes down to style, to the way that you talk. um, The food you eat. The food you eat. Whether or not you're someone who's on time to the party. Like, what are the things that you say, like, this is normative culture and everything else besides this is, you know, outside the bounds of what's normal? Yeah. And some other questions to ask yourself are, what are your standards of beauty? That's a big one. And most of the time, there's not a lot of diversity in marketing. There's not a lot of diversity in what we view as beautiful. It kind of is this single standard of beauty skinny white people right yeah i mean and that's reality i grew up wishing i had blonde hair and not brown hair and brown eyes because that wasn't beautiful 
based on all of the images of beauty that I was seeing. Um, another question is, what biases do you have? We talked about this a little bit earlier with someone walking on the other side of the street as someone who is black. Right. As an innate response. And if you start looking for these biases, uh, they're all over the place. I mean, I've been in like conversations with people and I've like internally in my head, like caught myself like, oh, wow, I'm viewing you negatively because of something that is pertaining to your racial makeup, whether it's the way they're they're talking or just something about them. And it, it clicked for me that I was raised to think that this was not the way you being the way that you are, that you're somewhat less than. And like, as I was like, I'm like having this internal like dialogue about my implicit biases as I'm having this conversation with this person. But if you are paying attention to that, it pops up alarmingly more frequently than you would think. Yeah. And that does allow you to have some kind of a personal responsibility an individualized responsibility is as you are looking at the way that you engage with people of a different color and trying to be aware of your own your own biases. And another question is, are there certain facts of history that you need to re-explore? There's a lot of things in history that, like we said on our last podcast, that point to white people as the hero and the stories themselves are only of white people. We might not even know the piece of that story that has to do with people of another color. Yeah. Do we want to touch on Confederacy monuments here? Have we been controversial enough? I I mean, I think we've been (laughs) controversial enough at this point. Let me just give you like a, but like like a thumbnail here. Okay. And certainly people can disagree with me about whether the Confederacy monuments should stay or should be torn down. But really what those were, if you look at them in their historical context, so the Civil War happens, slaves are emancipated, then the South is occupied basically by the North during Reconstruction, and a lot of rights are bestowed upon black people during that time. But then Reconstruction ends, the North pulls out, and Jim Crow law ensues, and there's segregation, there's oppression, there's the Ku Klux Klan, there's lynchings, there's all kinds of horrifying and horrible things. And part of that is once Reconstruction ended, that's when a lot of those Confederacy monuments went up. And really what the purpose of those Confederacy monuments were is that they were a symbol and a sign in those communities to basically put black people in their place and say that, hey, the North went back north and we're we're really in charge here. And so that's the symbolism of the Confederacy monuments. Now, there's a counter-narrative to that, that it's just about Southern pride. And maybe there's elements of both, but we can't deny that, that that's a different lens than maybe what you were brought up to know, or even the nature of the Civil War itself. We say it was about states' rights, but yeah, it was about states' rights to own slaves. And so a lot of these conversations, the we mentioned the Tulsa Oklahoma massacre of 1921. I had never even heard about that until like a year ago. I didn't. It's a massive, major moment in American history that I had literally never heard about. And so there's a lot of these things that we need to go back and look like, oh, wow, I was told the story this way. What's a different lens 
that I can look at that through. Yeah, and speaking of looking at things through a different lens, it's really important and it goes a long way for us to hear stories from people of color. There's something about sitting face to face with someone who didn't have the same life experience as you because they have a different color of skin and to actually hear life through their lens. When you sit face to face with someone and actually hear their stories, it's hard not to be compassionate. It's hard not to be empathetic. And a lot of the times we're hearing this conversation through the lens of media, through the lens of politicians, through the lens of just different platforms that allow the empathy and compassion to be removed because you're not sitting and looking into someone's eyes and hearing how the systems in place presently have pained them and hurt them and in many ways set them up for failure. But when you hear that from somebody that you know, a friend, and you're like, wow, I had no idea. That puts flesh onto the problems that we're reading about and hearing about. And it becomes more than words. It becomes a person. I think that's one of the the largest ways that we can begin to see change is by asking people of a different color about their stories. Step into those uncomfortable conversations and I promise you your empathy and compassion will grow because you now have a name and a face for a problem that you've been reading about, whether you agree with it or not, you actually have someone in the flesh talking to you about it. Yeah, I mean, the ball game changes when you look into somebody's eyes and you listen to their story, and their story runs counter to the narrative that you've been telling yourself about what race relations are really like. Yeah, and some other ways that you can respond is to advocate for changes in policy and vote accordingly. Again, we know this is a complicated one because we don't often actually know the consequences of any particular policy that like might be and we don't know the way that it's all going to be carried out. But we do have some form of responsibility to actually vote and advocate for certain policies that help bring transformation and restoration. Yeah, and this one is a little bit more nuanced and complicated because I think with policy issues, there's the the fact of what the policy is meant to do, and then there's the actual effect that it ends up having. And so there's a lot of different ideas on how to skin a cat. And so do whatever research you can and vote your conscience. And that is an avenue that that we ought to exercise. I think in our own personal spheres, going back to looking at your own circle will have a transformative effect in your immediate community. Yeah, and the last point that we want to talk on is a big way you can respond is to lean into the discomfort. And for white people, this is hard. It's incredibly uncomfortable. As soon as the conversation starts, we feel uncomfortable. And and that makes sense because it's an uncomfortable topic. But we have to be able to wade into that. And there have certainly been moments where I have felt uncomfortable and 
again, thought, mm, I just, I just don't want to process this anymore. I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to deal with it anymore. But then I remember the discomfort that I'm feeling. Someone else that's a person of color can't step out of that discomfort. And the least I can do is sit in this discomfort for for whatever moment that feels like. So if it's a conversation and it's uncomfortable, instead of trying to find my way out of it, I can lean further into it and know there are people that I love and care about that are carrying far larger burdens of discomfort and pain than me stepping deeper into a conversation. Yeah, and I think even just hanging in there for the stuff that it unearths in you, like the biases that you have that you didn't realize were there. Um, But as you begin to wade into those waters and begin to critically think about them and begin to analyze the relationships you have and what they look like and how you feel about those relationships and those people, and you start to unearth the biases that you have, that's deeply uncomfortable because you started the conversation saying, I'm not racist. And as it turns out, there are racial biases that you have. And I think just knowing that we all have racial biases, that's helpful in the conversation. Maybe in the moment it doesn't make you feel any better, but um, that's just important to remember that like the discomfort that you experience is often the catalyst for growth. And if we are all willing to grow into something better then, then that's the way that we are going to build a better tomorrow. Yeah, and as we feel uncomfortable and feel defensive and feel attacked, those should actually be signs, not for us to, to step out, but for us to step further in. And instead of us trying to come up with better arguments or better excuses, it might just be better for us to be quiet and to keep listening. Even a fool is considered wise when he seals up his lips. Right. And so we have an opportunity to be part of a solution and not just because we we want to see society better, but because as Christians, we are called to be part of the redemptive and transformative work of Jesus Christ. And we firmly believe that treating one another equally and fairly as we are all created in the image of God is frontline work for the gospel. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. We'd also love it if you head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review. And be sure to come visit us at herandhim.com where you'll find show notes for this episode, our blog, and other resources to help you experience the abundant life that Jesus promised us. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Grotheis, host of Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. Please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app.